The best thing that you will do today and any day of your life is to take up the Word of God. Open it, read it, give your heart and mind to it, and obey it. I want to invite you now, in light of Christ's great sacrifice for us, to listen reverently to His Word. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. We are continuing our study of this epistle, and we are at chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, before we read today's verses, which are verses 7 through 11, it is a fact that I just did not have the opportunity to make any comment last Lord's Day about verse 6. It is another one of those verses in the epistle that leaves some scratching their head because it does seem to say something strange, at least in terms of how it comes out in the English Bible. Something about, right, preaching of the gospel to the dead. Now, we might understand what it is for the preacher to preach sometimes the gospel to those who have fallen asleep. I know a bit what that is like most Sunday mornings. And by the way, a little footnote on that. You know, a previous generation of our brothers and sisters in Christ, you should know, they so reverenced the coming together of God's people to worship. They so reverenced wanting to hear the preached word that they began to get ready for church on Saturday night, if nothing else, by getting enough sleep. For some, as I recall, it was the setting out of the next morning's clothes to wear. It was not only getting to church on time, but often early in order to greet the fellow saints. And then with alertness and great anticipation, the call to worship and great joy. That's a Another sermon for which there is no extra charge today. But now for the sake of the economy of time, always my enemy it seems, I want you to follow along as I read verse 6, that which we did not expound uh, last Lord's Day. And what I'm going to do is just give you one teacher's paraphrase of that same verse that should satisfy any wonder that you might have had about the text, and it will also satisfy myself that I have, in fact, at least mentioned every verse throughout the entire first epistle of Peter. Now, the text says in my New American Standard translation, for the gospel has, for this purpose, been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. On the surface, that's difficult. But I believe that the Bible teacher Warren Wearsby paraphrased it this way in a wonderful way as he rendered it thus. There are people now dead physically, but alive with God in the spirit who were judged by the world. But they heard the gospel before they died and believed. They suffered and died, Wearsby says, because of their faith, but they are living with God, Peter would have us know. The conclusion really fits 
the total context almost of the whole epistle when Wiersbe puts it this way, it is better to suffer for Christ and to be with God than to follow the world and be lost. But in following Christ, as we've been learning, Peter says, there most certainly will come varying degrees of suffering. All those who would pursue to live godly in an ungodly world are going to suffer some form of discomfort and persecution. And that is true of every age and every culture. I, too, believe with Wearsby that that's the message of verse six. It's a message there as well as in the preceding verses. What I've discerned myself is Peter has said this a couple times. It's almost as though he's saying you believers who remain faithful against all the odds will have an opportunity on judgment day to say, at least in your own spirit, one of those I told you so's. I told you so. You thought I was a nut. And you said so. But now Christ has come in judgment and everything is laid bare and naked before him to whom everyone must give an account. And with sorrow, not with glee at all, but with with grief, the believer will look upon those and have to say, I told you so. It's pretty sobering truth, isn't it? Come now to our verses for today. Verses 7 through 11 of chapter 4, where Peter says, The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then he says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances or the oracles of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. I love this. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we open your word and like respectful children, we sit at your feet to hear you speak. Life giving wisdom to us. You speak with such gentleness and grace that we thank you for these most precious lessons, knowing that you always have our best interest at heart. For your glory and for you alone have the words of eternal life. Be honored by our attention, blessed by our obedience. Give us ears to hear. Amen. I can hear Peter saying at this point, do you know what time it is? I'm not talking about that. Peter says, this is what time it is. The end 
of all things is near. That, of course, is from God's eternal perspective, right? Where with God, a day, remember, is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. So I got out my calculator and I figured this all out for us this morning when he says the end of all things is near. In a certain sense, Peter is saying the end of all things is near when he wrote this just two days ago. Or in our time, 2,000 years ago. But the statement is true. I don't know if a man by the name of uh, William Jenny is still alive or not, because this was quite some time ago. But in his day in London, he was quite the rave. Jenny had this innate ability to guess the correct time within half a minute at any hour of the day or night. You could wake him up in the middle of the night and without looking at a clock, he could tell you what time it was. Ironically, we are told he was by trade a clockmaker as well as employed by the great Savoy Hotel in London where there were at that time 1,505 timepieces. The winding alone of so many clocks occupied four days of every week. This was his job. At one time, the British Medical Association put Bill Jenny through an exhaustive test and did everything in their power to dislodge what they diagnosed as, quote, an acute psychoastral poise. But they were never able to cure him. The word astral means star in the Greek and has reference to the moving of the heavenly bodies. And, of course, they're keeping time for us. Some time ago, shortly after I was married, in fact, my wife and I discovered a unique restaurant in the art district of Philadelphia, not too far from where we lived. And it became a favorite place to go. And it was called, that restaurant was called the Astral Plain. Now, the food was definitely eclectic, quite delicious. But I have to tell you, it was the ambiance of that place. Uh, The decor that was a feast for the eyes. It was even a little disorienting as the furnishing and decorations were this, this incredible mixture of every period of time and culture. All through the history of man. And when your plate was set before you, mine didn't match hers and the knife, fork and spoon. You and I would say it didn't go together, but it was a little piece of everything from over the course of time. The Astral Plane Restaurant in the Art District of Philadelphia. It's still there. You should try it sometime. Verse 7 is a declaration of truth about this matter of the astral aspect of time. About our place, frankly... In the course of redemptive history, redemptive history, since Jesus is still saving sinners and will do so till he comes again, is now a second millennium right of time since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That line of redemption, redemption embraces every culture, certainly includes life in America at the eighth month mark of the first day, uh, decade of this 21st century at 11.51 a.m. A long line of redemptive work. 
And Peter says, and it is true in this millisecond that it takes me to say the words, the end of all things is at hand. Now, that has to mean a number of things. It certainly means this. Jesus may come today. And objectively, as a Bible believer, you say, yes, I know that's true. Some of you are so sophisticated by now, you can say, yes, that's the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. But if you're anything like me, and you may have another part of your soul that says, yeah, I know Jesus may come today. Uh, I hope he waits till after the chicken dinner or whatever the case may be. I don't know that we, we quite believe that at the feeling level. But I have to tell you this, there's quite a bit of biblical evidence to suggest that Peter, Paul, and our first century brothers and sisters believed that Christ could come in their generation. Jesus at one point, remember, said, what's it to you if some are still alive and remain? And he was addressing individuals in the first century when he said that. What is it to you if... Some of you are still alive and remain when I come again. Now, he wasn't saying he was coming again in their lifetime, and some of them misunderstood that. But the point of Jesus came across as must Peter's teaching on this. It could be today. To say that the end of all things is at hand as well means this. It means that God has done everything already. It's finished and done it in time in the course of redemptive history, all that he's going to do just before he ushers in eternity. The work of redemption for the salvation of sinners was finished the day Jesus died and certified three days later when he rose. And there's nothing more we're waiting for. The end of all things is at hand. Be careful about how some of you I know have sat under a teaching that suggests there's three, four, or fourteen things have to happen. Peter says, it's all been done. Christ may come today, tomorrow, ten years from now. Certainly he will come at that time which is now known only to the Father. But the fact that that time is at hand means that the only thing that really matters is how you and I live before Jesus comes again. Thus a title that I give to my sermons. God's word has let us in on the fact. The fact is this. We know the end from the beginning. We know that we are living only in a meantime. And that is meant to have a tremendous impact on our values, certainly our choices, our decisions, every day that we have until Jesus comes. You see, when it comes to the doctrine of last things, believers are to live as though they know what time it is. The scriptures would infect us as it were, with Jenny's problem, only it would be a spiritual astral poise.
I like how the beloved Apostle John put it in his little love letter to the children of God. First John chapter three, verses two and three. You listen, beloved. Now, see, that's time right now. We are children of God and it has not yet appeared. That's future. What we will be. But we know the end from the beginning. John goes on to say, we know that when he appears, we will be made like him because we will see him as he is. Now, how do we know we really believe this? John writes in the next verse there, everyone who really does believe this is what he's saying. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. In other words, God has already done all that needs to be done for the salvation of your soul. You and I will therefore pursue godliness because, well, the end of all things is at hand. Work for the nine is coming when no one can work. Redeem the time because the days are evil, but they're coming to an end. So what follows from Peter, you see, is tremendously helpful, especially to those whose very lives were on the line for following Christ in the first century. But it is truth just as needful for us as it was for the believers in Peter's day, many of whom we just read about in verse 6 were once alive and the reason they're dead is because they were put to death because of their commitment to Christ. I reflected on this early this morning and I couldn't help but have come back to my memory one of the saddest biographies in all of the Bible, at least in the New Testament. There are many sad stories. But uh, this is what came to mind, and it's a brief biography, but one of the saddest. The Apostle Paul, as he often does, is naming names and recording forever in the Word of God those who stood with him in the ministry of the Gospel and in his great missionary work. And then there is this one tragic line that says this. But Demas. Demas. Paul says, having loved this present world, has forsaken. One of the saddest stories of all. The burden of my heart in these days... Are we more like Timothy and Titus who were charged to be faithful in their last days by the Apostle Paul? Are we, are we more like them? Where are the Timothys? Or are we too much like Demas? And have we forgotten that the end of all things is near? Well, now I want you to see what's going to follow because it's going to take a couple more Sundays, should the Lord tarry, to actually dig a little deeper and unpack these particular verses. But let 
let's just do it in summary form and then we'll be on our way for today. Verse 7 is where we've begun today and we'll pick it up in the next couple of weeks. I believe it's going to take living in the last days is what verse 7 is telling us that we are, in fact, living in the last days. Judgment is coming. And he tells us, notice, be of sound judgment. That's number one. I'm going to put two together. Sound judgment and sober spirit. For, number two, the purpose of prayer. And we talked a little bit about prayer earlier in our service. We looked at the Lord's Prayer before reciting it, and we recognized the certain dynamics of it. I also mentioned to you earlier that the most difficult of all the works of discipleship that I know of in which to be consistent is to have a prayer life that really counts. Peter is saying it takes some sound judgment and it takes being wised up. It takes having a sober spirit, he says, for the purpose of prayer. What if it is the fact that our prayers have so little depth and so little fervency because, in fact, we are allowing the world, as it did for Demas, to dazzle us and distract us and we have forgotten what is to come with sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Thirdly, in verse 8, and again, we're going to unpack these in more detail in the weeks to come. Above all, so there's a, there's a priority statement going on here. It's, it's like mother saying to the child before the child leaves the house, Now, if you don't remember anything else, please remember this. Well, he wants them to remember everything else like being of sound judgment and sober for the purpose of prayer. But this must be a great priority in view of the fact that Jesus is coming again. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of what? We say, oh, sometimes it's just so hard to love some people. Beloved, what you must be referring to is that there's something irregular about that person. Perhaps that's a a believer who, who hasn't had all of the grace to invade every area of their temperament and personality, and they're just a plain pain in the neck. Difficult. We say it's sometimes hard to love some people that are even part of the body of Christ. But isn't it interesting here? The command to keep our love hot, which is what the Greek word there for fervent means. The same Greek word can be used of a boiling pot of water. Above all, keep fervent, keep hot in your love for one another. You're going to need this because love is for the purpose, among other reasons, to cover the multitude of sins of which we all have our share. So, let's give up this business of struggling before the Lord about how some people are hard to love. Truth be known, we're all hard to love. It took the death of Christ to redeem us with a love while we were still His avowed enemies. And if you remember recently, we've shared how that kind of redeeming, atoning, covering love is required of His children 
as well. And again, we'll unpack that because that is so important. When we get to verse 9, you might want to be, those of you that study at home, you might want to take a concordance. That's where you can look up a single word and then find every verse in the Bible where that word occurs. I challenge you, maybe you'll want to do this before next Lord's Day. Uh, Look up this word hospitality. It's amazing to me how many hospitality commands there are. And it must mean more than offering tea and cookies. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And then verses 10 and 11 remind us of this wonderful news that when God redeemed us, he not only forgave our sins and has made us fit for heaven, but he has equipped us with spiritual gifts so that we may be what we need to one another. This is the way Christ comes among us. And we need to remember that. We need one another because Christ dwells in the body that is the believers. In other words, I need you, my brother. I need you, my sister, because Christ dwells in you and has given you a gift so as to express his life to me. See, someone can't say quite piously like some spiritual lone ranger, oh, I want to get close to Jesus and then neglect the body, the church. This is where we come, and in large part, we meet with Jesus as he dwells in each of us, expressing the spiritual gifts that he has given to us. So we'll unpack those verses in the days to come.